Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome uh, to this session in the North Cornwall Book Festival. Uh, these are two absolutely fantastic books, which I have uh, derived enormous pleasure in reading, uh, written by two fabulous authors. And they are both very different and yet have themes that at various points allied. Lisa's book, Rag and Bone, is about what we can learn from stuff, really, stuff found on beaches in uh, the sludge around rivers and what it can tell us about what's happening to our world. Lamorna's book is a kind of total immersion, really, with the world of the fishermen of Newlyn, which produces some, some rather interesting crossovers from, from what Lisa's written about. Um, mudlarking, Lisa, is at the heart of, of your book. Uh, mudlarking is very different to beachcombing, isn't it? It is. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of similarities. Um, but the main difference, I start the book in, uh, in central London where my family seven generations ago um, lived. And there, the mud is anaerobic, so the, the preservative qualities are incredible. So the things you find there come out of the mud in very similar quality to what they would have gone in in London up to 2,000 years ago. So whereas the stuff in Cornwall has often been buried in the sand, sometimes for decades, and, um, but the, the process is quite similar. It's just wandering and seeing what stands out. And there's a long and distinguished history to mudlarking, isn't there? I mean, it, it was very much a profession at one point. It was in, the, in early Victorian times and before. Um, people that were probably near destitute would have, in, in London, you just scavenged for whatever you could find. And people specialised in different, different things. You had people... The, the bone pickers and you had the rag gatherers and you'd have mudlarks that were collected whatever they could from the river quite often. Um, and you, you got the toshers that searched the sewers. But there, were, there was a market for everything at the time because people were so poor that these things were still valuable. And nothing was wasted? Nothing, no. Almost, almost zero waste in early Victorian London, which soon changed. But Lamorna, how did you end up in Newlyn. There's a wonderful moment in your book where a fisherman is drunkenly singing way down to Lamorna to you. <laughs> yes. Obviously the name was right, but, but what was the story that started you off in, in Well, in I'd always come to Cornwall. My mum, I've been called Lamorna, um, but my mum grew up in the Lance, so in the Bay of St. Ives. Um, and I did, after university, like loads of people, I had no idea what to do. So I went straight in and did a master's in anthropology because I thought, okay, I'll just get more debt. That's a good way of not thinking about the future too much. And uh, for your anthropology masters, you have to do four weeks field work somewhere. And I had all these bold ideas of where I wanted to go. But there's been this amazing shift in anthropology recently, which is the fact that you always have to be conscious of if you're going somewhere, why are you going there? What is your connection there? So if I went to a country that I didn't speak the language to, just that act of translation of saying, oh, can you turn everything into English? You're going to lose so much. And I'd gone on holiday to Cornwall, so where my mum's from, where my granny and my great-granny lived. And I was in a shop and I was telling someone about this master's and I had to decide where to do my field work. And they said, why don't you do it here? Why don't you go and look at the fishermen? And my only understanding of Newland was it was the place we'd stop really briefly to pick up fish um, kind of during our holiday. I thought, actually, that's a great idea. So initially, I just went there to do this field work. And I was so lucky because I called around. I found a couple who said, we've got a spare room if you want to come and stay here. And when I turned up, they said, um, so uh, we heard you want to study ants. <laughs> and they thought I was going to be even weirder than an anthropologist. I was here to study the anth anth anthropology of Cornwall. And then realised actually what I wanted to study was people and community and the way that communities are shaped by the sea. 
So initially it was just master's field work and I had no sense that it was going to be something that would become a book later. I have to say, when I started reading the book, I thought, how are you going to be taken in by these tough fishermen of Newland, this community which probably raises, it, uh, it raises its eyes at the idea of newcomers, the idea of people who are, are turning Newland into something rather more fancy than the, the fishing port it once was. But they seem to kind of welcome you with open arms. They seem to be incredibly open right from the beginning. Mm, well, so again, my uh, supervisor at my university said, there's no way you'll get to go out on a boat. Cornish fishermen are really territorial. There's no way they'll let that happen. And I think I've thought a lot about why I was so lucky. Firstly, it was because the couple I lived with, one was a fishmonger and one was a ship's chandler. They were in the pub every night. They knew everyone. Denise is probably one of the most amazing women I've ever met. And she really was the center of everything. And she, t she was very small. She'd take me by the arm and say, this is Lamorna. She's studying fishing. She's going to go on your boat, but if you do anything wrong to her, you're going to be in trouble with me. <laughs> so it worked out beautifully for me that I got to know them that way. The other thing, I had um, an amazing conversation with another writer recently who wrote about um, going to uh, meet people in the North Sea. Uh, and she, Tabitha Lasley, uh, this amazing book called Sea State that just came out. But she did that in her late 30s. Um, and she was saying that the men were incredibly hostile to her and she actually had a really hard time. And I think that actually, I was a 22-year-old um, I wasn't taken very seriously, and that was actually a really lucky thing because it meant that I was able to go in there, and I think I was treated a bit like a child, and therefore I was actually able to get things that I might not have done if I was an older woman. And I think that's interesting going forth as a travel writer. Mm. What happens as you get older, how you're taken uh, seriously in different ways as you grow up. Lisa, your book is, is very much a journey through your family. I mean, it starts off in central London. It goes then to uh, the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. It then ends up here in Cornwall. This was this kind of partly biographical discovery through this passion you have for, for collecting things. It was, yeah. I, the, the structure of the book, it starts in... My, my family lived at Water Street that led down to the Thames just off the Strand in 1840s. And so over the seven generations, we moved down the river to the estuary and then eventually to the sea in Cornwall. But so I chose places that, that were, so, so it also follows a chronological age of what we've thrown away. So I follow the, the, the beaches I would choose would be relevant to the particular era. So fortunately in the central London, there, there would be the older finds. And then as, the population grew in London, there was just too much waste and so it would be barged out to the estuary. So a lot of the finds, as I moved down the river to where they, the family lived towards the estuary, the things I'm finding would then be Victorian finds because it was just the, the dust heaps in London had become huge. So, and, and they were becoming unsightly and so they needed, the more, more rubbish there was, the further afield it had to go to be out of sight and you were allowed to dump it on the marshes. There's a lovely description early on in the book of, of those steps that lead from land down to the banks of the Thames. And, and you paint it as if you go down those steps in central London and then moving further east. And it's as if you're entering a different world somehow, that the city stops and something else starts, this kind of ever-changing river. It's very much like that. In central London, the, 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 the difference in low tide and high tide is about the height of a two-storey building in central London. So it's almost, you, you drop down, because so, so street level is much higher than, than the riverbed. And it really is, you just drop down and all the, the sound, everything disappears. It's partly because you go in a little world of looking. Um, but it also, it physically feels like you've just left the city into it. And it's, got, it's a big space in the middle of the city and it, it, it's, it's quiet and it's... it's and I think that's attractive. Mudlarking is really popular now. 
and a big attraction is that solitude in the middle of the city, I think, and the peace. You paint, though, vividly what it must have been like once upon a time. Houses of easement, tell us about those. <laughs> they were uh, public toilets. <laughs> it's a lovely name, House of Easement. But they, they were, because the waste is obviously everything was being chucked in the river early on. But how, so you just basically have a plank, whether that's over the lost rivers that, that are now sewers, that were the tributaries of the Thames, or also on the Thames. But they'd have these houses of easement had maybe 64 seats, and you'd have the men and the women, and they're just a hole in a plank, and you all sit. And then the tide would come in, go out. Wash it and just slosh back and forth, central <laughs> London. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you talk beautifully about evoking the, the stink there must have been, the, the, the filth, the, the, the terrible way of, of life there was in a lot of these riverside communities. And then you've got uh, 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 slummers, um, uh, 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 posh people coming to, to kind of look at, at how the poor are slumming it, doing, doing sort of tours of these areas. Yeah, there was, there was a stage that, that it was. It was a kind of version of colonialism where you, you, they would do buses out to the slums and, and my family lived in the slums but they, they, it, it was, you'd probably have six or eight people to a room so my family all lived in one room um, at this stage and conditions were awful and people would be bussed out on tours to come and look at how the other half lived because it was being reported and it was appearing, Charles Dickens' novel, it was all they were being serialised, and so people were becoming aware, and there was more journalism about mm. it by the 1800s, so people were becoming aware of this quite exotic, and they were quite close, because you had to, before the trains, you had to live quite close to where you worked, and very close to where, so you could just walk. So they, behind the, the place where my family lived, it's just, it's literally, it's, it's a moment from the Strand, it opens out onto the Strand, but there were, the slums were all behind the, the more commercial streets, the big grand commercial streets, and there were slums right behind those. It's an amazing kind of portrait of London that you paint in that in that first in that first chapter. Um, Lamoni, you arrive in Newlyn, and Denise and Lofty, you've told us about this this fabulous couple who I think say uh, you, you you're all right with someone smoking, uh, you're right with people drinking, uh, to which you go yes yes yes. I can't remember if they ask you if you eat meat but they're they're quite they're quite straightforward I think in terms of what they're offering you with their spare room mm. yeah um they definitely were and I think also so again I when I think back to what the book is now and I guess like genre is a slippery thing but for me more than anything it feels like a coming of age book because I got there at 22 and I was desperately seeking something and I think I was seeking community and somewhere to be from and um, when you grow up in London you're trying to build your identity uh, as distinct from other people. So in my head I was always Cornish because I had this funny Cornish name. And then I got to Newland and I was like, oh God, you're not Cornish at all. You're such a Londoner. You're, so, you're very, very like, there's nothing else you could be. And I kind of met them and I hadn't seen community like that. I hadn't seen, say, a co-op. This people seem so obvious to most people, but where you see the same people working in the same shops every single day. And what I got from Denise and Lofty was they'd say every night, they'd be like, okay, cool, so we're all going to the pub together. We'd go to the pub. Then we'd finish at the pub and Denise and Lofty would say, okay, should we get a bottle of vodka for the way home now? <laughs> and I was like, I've just done university and I thought I'd learn how to drink, but actually, I had no idea. Um, and so when we'd go back and we'd all get drunk together and kind of watch telly together. And it really was, again, I'd come out of university with this idea of like how I needed to be erudite and have all these like, important conversations. And suddenly to meet Denise and Lofty, who are probably the best storytellers I've ever met, 
we would just sit and chat and it would just be who came into the fishmonger that day. And I really think it, it, like, it, it informed my identity in a way I really wasn't expecting. Um, and they remain so important and the book is dedicated to them. But just before the book came out, so a couple of months before, just pre-pandemic, uh, Denise like, really suddenly died uh, in the middle of the night of, of a heart attack. And they, one of those couples who you are just amazed by the way they are together. And he's a quiet guy. He's called Lofty because he's very, very tall. It's like most good Cornish nicknames. Um, and when I went to the funeral, I think it was like the, the clearest sign of what this community was because I got down there and the church was totally full. No one's really that religious. Um, everyone was still in their oil skins. A lot of the fishermen were wearing sunglasses so that if they were crying, you couldn't tell. And the, the song, her, the kind of final song for her was um, Abba's Dancing Queen. And it just felt, it was like, and um, they'd stuck, um, Denise also famously, she, um, she, had a, she once found a pink tricycle when she was drunk one evening after being in the pub. And she rode it into the co-op and knocked over all the cereal boxes. <laughs> and there's video footage and it's great. And so after she died, they stuck this tricycle with lights through it up above the pub. And really, it just, yeah, there was so much about her that she was very much like a kind of surrogate parent while yeah. she was there. And I'm very interested, it suddenly struck me that when I was reading the book, that when I got to the last couple of chapters, it became crystal clear that this is a biography as well as being a story about fishing. And I hadn't quite realised that until this final sort of summation when you look back. And I suddenly thought, oh yes, I can completely see now what you've learned as a person from this experience. Partly from being alone much of the time at sea. You were on a, a, a trawler with, what, eight, eight, eight fishermen? But you're still alone a lot of the time, in a way. Mm. Yeah, I think um, it's something, and I can't decide where I stand on this, because some books you read that have loads of uh, the first person in them are extraordinary, and that's what makes them. And other times, it's kind of amazing, particularly like you know, New Yorker-style writing, where even in non-fiction, the eye disappears completely. And I think I was a bit embarrassed that there's so much of me in it, but I really, at that point, had no other way of doing it. And again, this anthropological training made me think that uh, this is always going to be a partial view. I'm never going to get these people right. I'm only going to be here for a short amount of time. So it has to be me awkwardly trying to work out what on earth I'm doing here, what my relationship with, with these people are, and the version of themselves that they're giving me. So things like, and I think the way that that would kind of come into play is fishermen on land, the way they'd, I'd sit down in the pub and I'd interview people for hours at a time and again get quite drunk and then have to listen back to recordings of myself sounding <laughs> really embarrassing and saying, well, where did you do fishing anyway? <laughs> but when I, when I would sit with them, a lot of the men would say, um, yeah, we're men of the sea. And when we go out to sea, there's nothing else. We're cut off from the land. And that was how they viewed themselves. And then you get out to sea and actually you're constantly in contact with the land and you're thinking about economic time all the time. And so I was really interested and I think I, couldn't have, I needed to have myself in there to kind of be like understanding the difference between the way people express themselves and have to show themselves. And you have to be a hero of the sea. If you're going out into an environment where a lot of people die every year, you have to make it sound grand in order to manage that. And then the difference between it being out there and you know, us eating our packets of crisps and watching whatever, daytime telly whilst on the trawler and the distinctions between that. So I think, yeah, I had to have myself in there in order to navigate those shifting understandings of what to be at sea is. Is there that sense, Lisa, with you that when, when you go off mudlarking, you're in a different place? It's a different, a different chapter in your life or a different corner of, of, of your life that you, you get away when you're, when you're out there? Yeah, I think it is. And, and it, it's very absorbed. You, you become completely absorbed in what you're doing. And I often had to go to the places twice because you're so absorbed that you realise you didn't notice anything. <laughs> but weren't you really pleased with the three things you found? <laughs> 
but so I would have to do that to incorporate the, the, all the, the other elements of it. And there's a lovely moment. You're very nice about it, but you're, you're on the banks of the Thames, and suddenly there's a, a, a whole load of uh, a, a, a Chinese wedding party having their photograph taken. And you suddenly realise that this has become a thing, that obviously it's Tower Bridge in the background and people want this kind of London view. Uh, and it's kind of charming and also rather irritating because they're, they're in your way. Well, it's, I found it extraordinary <laughs> because I had no... It's a little beach. No one else goes mudlarking on it. It's just a, a, as if you go down through an old brewery and down these steps this, this, to this... And it was covered in mud that day. The top of the shore is sometimes covered in silt. And it just... And two people came down in that there was, a, there was a couple, a Chinese couple, and then a Russian couple came down, each with a photographer. And it turned out it is a thing that you, you go in front of all the landmarks in London. But I had no idea. But they've got pristine white dresses on <laughs> and high heels, and they're just coming down to the very edge, and the photographer needs them in a really specific place for a good shot. But there's mud all over the shore, so that was surreal. That was a particularly surreal day. When you started writing, did you intend that this would become an exploration of, of your family and, and, and your, your relations, as, as, as well as being what it is, a book about the environment and a book about discovery? Yes, yeah, the, the, the family element of it. I was actually approached by the publisher to um, write it, so it came about. And my previous, my backgrounds as a photographer, um, and my previous books have been a mixture of photography and writing. And so it was a big departure and a big change to me. So it grew out of a conversation with him about the the, the aspect of my scavenging, echoing what my family had done in the past. Um, so, and but I didn't at that time. I didn't. I was. I didn't know where the family, that my family didn't know where my family came from, that particular branch of dustmen and scavengers. So um, that, that was, it was a really exciting phase, finding out where they lived and just hoping for a connection with the river of some sort. And then it turned out they had lived right on Water Street that, that opened out on the Thames at the time. So, so there, was, there was luck quite a bit of luck involved. One of the things that changed the, the, the business of, of scavengers, I, I, this, I thought, oh yes, when I read this, but it never occurred to me, was the new type of, uh, of dustbin lorries that crush everything. Because before that, dustbin men had yeah. the rights to, to collect stuff, yeah. didn't they? My, my granddad, it's called Toot, anything you rescue from, my granddad was just a dustman. And, but it, to him, it was a real art. That, that this is pre the trucks and pre the, the, the where they, they compact it. But he would, his rounds were in um, the elephant, he lived in the Elephant Castle, and his rounds was Bermondsey in the Elephant Castle, and it included his own street. So my nan would hear, when well my mum and her brothers speak about this, my nan would hear the door go, and my nan would go, oh, and wait till the noise had stopped, and she'd go out there and see what he'd left in the passage. <laughs> and there'd be a bizarre array of stuff that they remembered appearing in the passageway. But that all changed once they changed the system and, and, and it was compacted. He was, he was upset and didn't want to do it anymore because it had been something, he, my nan saw it as a huge step up from scavenger to dustman. So, and he was really, he, he loved his job at that stage from, from how my mum describes, but as soon as the trucks came in, yeah. it wasn't the same. And what, what, what was the word for it? You, you said it briefly. Tut. Tut. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I didn't know, nobody in my family knew how you would spell it, um, but it's, um, in the book, I spell it T-O-O-T, -O -O -T, as in foot, but it's also spelt top, um, and it, it comes from um, the bone pickers. The old name in London for the bone pickers was the top pickers, so, and a, a rag and bone man was a totter, so, so took came from top, as far as I 
could find out. And I think I might have spelt it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Lamorna, at the heart of your book, or I suppose providing the framework for your book, is the time you spent on board uh, the Philadelphia, uh, spelt with a, an F rather than a, a PH, uh, which is a, a Newlyn-based trawler. And uh, this is where you were for, for eight days, I think, living the life, learning how to gut fish. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, the skipper, uh, Don, who, who you describe as, well, obviously you describe as being the best skipper in the Southwest, but he, he sounds like an amazing character. Yeah, he really is in, in so many different ways. Um, I think my favorite thing about Don is, again, he has a sort of gruff exterior and he's this big guy. Uh, he used to call himself a professor of kebabs and he really knows like the best kebabs in, in Newlyn. Um, and then when you get to see, he totally shifts into a much more contemplative person. But also to be the skipper, you are in charge of everything. And it does mean that if you aren't getting good hauls and if you come back and you don't make a big profit, then that is everybody who's going to have less of a paycheck. So I think he was really exhausted constantly whilst we were out there. But he had this incredible speaker system uh, with all his music on it. And he told me that his music was the way he lets out his emotions. So I'd come out and he'd be standing before the windows, looking out at the sea, uh, singing along to Adele. And it was incredible. <laughs> and we'd kind of have these like emotional moments together. Um, and he was difficult in other ways too. And I think I, when I knew I was going, I'd been on a trawler for four days the first time I'd gone, which was fine. There was um, quite a posh trawler. The first quite time. a posh trawler. Yeah. It was from St Ives, and it was like a, a new <laughs> trawler. And I had a sort of separate room to myself, or I kind of like pull across room. And this trawler, it's Stevenson's, it's an old boat, it was built in 1969, and it was falling apart and it stank, and it was really dirty. Um, and I expected, because the first trawler I'd been on had had Wi-Fi, and I assumed that that was just what you got in trawlers. <laughs> and so I hadn't told my parents that I was going away and that I'd be gone for quite a while. And we get out there and I said, so what's the Wi-Fi code? <laughs> and they all looked at me like, oh God, she's going to be a nightmare. Um, and then, yeah, so then suddenly realized, okay, so I'm out here in the middle of nowhere with these guys who I don't know very well. And actually eight days is gonna feel like a really long time. Um, and I'm someone who's definitely struggles with emotions, particularly when I was younger, and have really, uh, I suppose as everyone does, specific coping mechanisms. And suddenly to be amongst these guys who I didn't know very well with nowhere to go, I found it really hard. And Don also has definitely had He's been through a lot and a lot of things that have, like, he's really struggled with. Um, and he saw me about five days in do that kind of like telltale sign of just sort of disappearing. I kind of stopped talking. I was still doing the gutting. I was still getting involved, but I just wasn't present at all. And he started slamming surfaces anytime I was nearby. And he'd go like, bam! And I'd be like, oh, God. And I thought, what is this guy doing? I'm, re I'm feeling really low, and this is making me feel worse. And at the end of the day, he basically told me, you know, he'd been trying to kind of bring me out of it. So, oh God, okay, we do this in different ways, but, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Um, but it did, the next day I kind of woke up and felt better. And we, there was something about the fact that we couldn't look at our phones for eight days and we couldn't talk to our families for eight days that meant, and you'd just be looking out at the sea, and I don't know if any of you have this, but things like when you're in a car, those are the best conversations sometimes because you're not looking at each other or you're sat on a bench and actually staring at the sea for a good three, four hours on watch, just watching the sea, meant that we all got to know each other in this really beautiful way um, and I think, yeah, Don particularly, when I got off the boat, he sort of remained a friend. Mm. And I, I wasn't used to having a, a guy in his mid-50s as a close friend. Um, but he's great and, yeah, can drink anyone under the table. <laughs> there's, a, there's a VHF radio on board, isn't there? And you talk about this thing where at half past six each day, the Stevensons kind of check in on all their trawlers. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of it. I mean, you, other than that, you're out there on your own. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that, that actually, they, they use that system in a fun way because you can c contact boats that are nearby you. 
And so often it would feel like you're still in the pub because it would still be two fishermen across the sea, away from home, talking about what they were going to have for dinner that night on the trawler. And so it kind of felt like this lovely way of, like, again, showing that time doesn't just slip away when you're at sea. You're still like re-establishing those kind of community connections. Well, I'm glad you mentioned food because that plays such an important role, uh, it, obviously, in the life of trawlermen. And you, you start off, you and Don go off to Lidl and uh, Tesco, I think, in Penzance, and do, do the shop, uh, which is sort of two trolleys full of every kind of meat and every kind of burger and yogurts but not cherry yogurts every other which he thinks are the, the devil's <laughs> yeah. spawn um, and then food keeps recurring and I suppose food whether it's kind of chicken burgers that you have on the first night or you meet a guy called Simon who uh, who, who on his trawlers is cooking boeuf bourguignon Thai fish <laughs> curry and things it, it, it's so it's so important to just keeping away from the monotony I suppose completely and it's also the only time that everyone's together so because you're either on watch or because trawling, they say, um, keep the gear wet, never miss a toe. So every four hours, the, um, the nets are coming up and you're then gutting the fish. So it means that there's no kind of regular sleeping pattern. Everyone is taking their four hours when they can. So the only time you will come together each day is for this dinner. And Kyle, who was my age, so he was 22 as well, um, and was expecting his first, his, his wife was pregnant as well at the time. Uh, but he was in charge of food and it's a really big responsibility and people are very specific about what they want. And he had his sort of specialities, which was this hunter's chicken, that's sort of like massive, um, like treacly almost chicken. And they'd always have at least two or three types of meat and massive chips. And it was, it was like this kind of lovely moment. And sometimes we'd chat and sometimes we'd be watching uh, a game show and all kind of like joining in on that. But it was, again, it was a way of saying, okay, we're out here, we're gonna sort of be a family during this moment. Mm. Um, and I had been a vegetarian and got there and I thought, again, I can't, I just can't this week, I'm just gonna eat meat. <laughs> or it's gonna be a nightmare and they're gonna think I'm everything that they expected from this London girl. So I ate the meat, I got involved. And um, I got very badly seasick the first day and threw up for about a good few hours. Um, and people can always tell when you're gonna be seasick because you start yawning. And all the men were going, oh, so will you yawn? And I'd kind of be trying to turn around and be like, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not yawning. Um, and then was really lucky that actually I was only seasick for that first day and then was completely fine after that. Because I think the boat that I went on, they've taken a lot of uh, people out, sometimes photographers or journalists, and some people are sick throughout. And if you make the boat go home because you're that sick, Ooh. then they're going to lose so much money. So it felt, in my head, I was like, I cannot get really sick here. I'm really going to have to hold on and be strong. Yeah. So I think it was quite lucky. Uh, Lizzie, there's a fabulous few pages in your book about eels, uh, which I absolutely loved and, and reread several times. The kind <laughs> of, I mean, the horror of them, for starters. Uh, well, and the extraordinary thing of eels. Yeah, uh, well, uh, tell, uh, us, tell, us where, well uh, tell us about eels and where they come from, because this is amazing. All come from the Sargasso Sea. You've, lots of you will know this, but if you don't know this, it's unbelievable yeah. that all the eels in Britain and in, in Europe are even the every every ditch every tiny they've all travelled a couple of thousand couple of thousand miles yeah, from 4, from miles, yeah. from, from um, the Sargasso Sea, which is near Bermuda. Of, it takes near Bermuda, and it takes a couple of years for them before they before they go up the Thames. I felt more interested in eels after reading that <laughs> reading that fact. They are extraordinary. Yeah, <laughs> and the way that they were so much part of kind of life uh, and were eaten, of course, because they were a, a, a cheap source of food. I remember as a, as a child my family have all eat jelly deals and uh, I, can, I, I was always quite horrified by them because they're, they're, they're in a jelly and they, they used to fish around. I remember my nan fishing around for, in her mouth for the bone as a kid and it was, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> but, and my dad used to, 
there's a bit in the book where my dad, he used to throw them back because he was from the Isle of Sheppey and he didn't, they didn't eat meals there, but my nan did. So he brought a lot home for her and he decided he was going <laughs> to chop them up for her and he hadn't done it before. And uh, they just keep, keep moving and he had the whole kitchen. You take the head off and they're still, they were up the walls, there's blood everywhere. <laughs> and it was really horrific. So you say, then he just... Which you sounds can. rather like a scene in the in the in the in the <laughs> bottom of the like Philadelphia. The between us. Yeah, I mean, had you ever had you ever gutted a fish before you went out on the Philadelphia? I, I think we won't be surprised here. No, I'd never no. gutted a fish. <laughs> and you become kind of master. Well, I you learn to fill it in the end. I learned to fill it. Fill it. I was very bad at, and it is really hard, and it requires like a sort of very deft touch, which I don't have. But gutting, you don't need to be quite as gentle. Um, and again, I thought, okay, so I'm here for eight days. You're gutting every four hours. I've got a gut with you. Um, and I got given my own knife, and it was much blunter than everyone else's. So I think they had seen how shaky I was <laughs> on the boat. And um, each fish requires a totally different gutting method. And so to begin with, I was given lemon soles, which are really slippery. So I was kind of trying to hold them with, I was using um, massive gloves, which are much too big for me, and then trying to gut this fish. And ended up with, and I didn't shower for the eight days. Not because there wasn't a shower, there was, but no one else was. And I thought, well, I'm not going <laughs> um, And then, so then I had, because I, a bit to begin with, again, it was sort of this anthropological training of having my field notes. So I had my diary, and I'd be writing down at the end of each day all the different fish I'd learnt to cut that day. And I'd draw where to do the incision, like which way you hold them. So that the next day, I didn't want to come and, and have forgotten and not seem good. So the next day I'd come in and I'd be like, okay, I'm going straight to the lemon soles and I know how to do this. Um, and the, the fish that I'd kind of been most horrified by were the rays, and there were quite a few different rays, and those mainly are exported to Japan. And there's just something about them that is more anthropomorphic, and they are much larger. And about halfway through, they said, OK, why don't you try gutting a ray? And as I was trying to begin gutting, the, I'm really sorry, this is so graphic, I should have given you a warning. Um, the the ray was kind of going like this with its arms, so trying to sort of fold around me. And it was just like, I was like oh my god, I, can't believe I'm actually doing this. And the guy shouted to me, stab it in the heart! And I went, oh God! And, and we're sort of yeah, stabbing this, this fish in the heart. And we'd have these moments where suddenly I would step out of my body and remember kind of me walking around in the or like, you know, going to the library with all my books and thinking, what the hell am I doing here? How has this happened? Um, and then most people had a kind of good fishing nickname. And because I was in equal parts repulsed by the rays, but also kind of intrigued by them, they decided that I should always gut the rays and that they'd call me Raymundo. <laughs> I was thrilled to get my first fishing nickname. And I think they might have said it about twice, but I think I then referred to myself as Raymundo to really make sure it stuck with them. <laughs> At the heart, uh, Lisa, of, of your book is, is, I suppose, an environmental message from what you've learned from, from what, you've, what you've collected um, about how we are screwing the oceans, really, and the seas. And, and this is something you both quote, in fact, um, in fact, by 2050, there'll be more plastics by weight in the sea than fish, which is you know, quite a staggering, staggering statistic. You see a lot, of, a lot of this. You collect a lot of this on beaches, on rivers, bits of plastic, toys, things that have fallen off shipping containers. The volume of it seems staggering. It did. In you, there's particular beaches in Cornwall that they're usually west-facing and, and sandy beaches. And after a storm, if you go down after a storm or a, a, particularly after a southwesterly gale that's been for a few days, it, it will have dragged all the sand offshore. And that releases all the plastic that's buried under the sand. So I, I would go down, and it's probably this, this was the early 
probably 10, 15 years ago, I would first go to certain beaches on my south coast. Um, and it would just be completely covered in plastic. And because it's buried for a long time, you can, you, you'll find things, it became some of the most interesting things to find in, in, in quite a poignant sense would be the plastic that's very specifically datable. So um, there'll be toys. Just I'll just, I'll just show yeah. you a yeah. toy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a show and tell. It's <laughs> part of our This is, um, this is, Butch from Sooty, and he came free with Cocoa Pops in 1973. Uh, and you, you know this because you found a website that details every cereal toy. Yes, there's, there, the there are websites, them, yeah. but they're also in there, there are fantastic communities of beach cleaners, and they find everything because they're clearing everything off the beach. But, and it's also, it can be quite a good way. My kids go, go were, were, they don't so much now because they're teenagers. Um, but things like this. We've got the action man. Well, I've got, I've got two bits of Action Man in here. I've got, this is Action Man's hand. This is 1963 to 1966 to 1973 because it's a hard hand. And after 1973, he got grippy hands, according to Action Man collectors. And they used to, at trade shows, they had to, they had to use an elastic band to attach his weapons until this. And this part is, this is, Action Man's bottom, but this, <laughs> this is 1966 to 1978 because he turned into Blue Pants Action Man. Is the so collector's his bottom, his bottom was, When was his bottom bare until? 1978. It became unacceptable for Action Man. So, so that was so the dateable. And show us that bit of plastic. We may have to explain to Lamona what that is. Um. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't get what the yeah, I've never Sorry, that was very obvious. Um, a bit of cassette. I mean, yeah. all of this stuff, it's kind of beautiful to see. And the way, you've, the way you collect it and you store it and, and the way it's been photographed for the book makes it look something of great beauty. But it's also something terrifying. And, and two thoughts that, that, that struck me. I mean, you, you described glass bottles uh, in the 18th century probably being used for 100 years, being filled and refilled and filled and refilled. We both remember the Corona bottles that you took back and got eightpence or tenpence back when you returned the bottles. I mean, it's completely, completely gone. And, and you, you talk about uh, recycling almost feeling now like it's something about assuaging our guilt, that we think because we've recycled, that's enough, even though we have no real idea what happens to it or indeed how much stuff isn't actually recyclable. Mm, I think, I mean, it was a big... It was a big um eye-opener for me of, of plastic in my own life because I think it becomes almost invisible um, because it's so ubiquitous but to and that was that those early going to the beaches where there would be toothbrushes and toothpaste lids and and just things that are almost invisible in your own life but it's so incongruous to find them on a beach um, that I became more over the period and, and through the research of the book became much more aware of how we, we'd, we'd lost that value in the resources that things are made for, um, that things are made from, because they were back, when I'd look back to the period when my family were being scavengers, those resources were being reused, and so much of the things I would find on the beach were not recyclable because they're so complex now in, the, in their design. Um, and, and it was a real eye opener. Have you got the old that. toothpaste? I've got, yeah, toothpaste tubes that's, were, this that's is just, really, I mean, we, this we'll all remember those, won't we? Those, those old red... Little metal tube with... Uh, I'd find old lead tubes as well, actually, in the Thames. Um, but that would have been recyclable. 
yes, it would have been. Um, but also the, 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 the thing that astonished me about toothpaste tubes was that at some point over in the preceding not very many years, I think my toothpaste tube looks nothing like this now. It's a great big thick plastic one that enables us to have an even more convenient toothpaste upside down. But it, so it would be sometimes seeing the old designs of things was, was also how, how, again, it reinforced how invisible it, the, the, the changes had become and, and what we were using. When we do the signing afterwards, um, you're going to have some of these out on, on the table. So if you come and <laughs> buy a book and get it signed, you can see these close up. Um, Lamora, it struck me that actually a lot of the fishermen were very aware of this, that particularly the younger ones were, were, were aware of the responsibility of, of, of fishermen, or almost as some way sort of stewards of, of, of the oceans. Yeah, it was a mixture. I, um, I was reading something recently about this idea of moving from climate denial to climate doom, and the idea that like it's, it's a similarly um, passive response, uh, and that it feels really scary to kind of come across things like this, where you actually are sort of shown, oh yeah, that look at all this plastic we're drawing up in the trawlers, what do we do about this? But it is, and it often is the kind of younger generation or, or, of particular industry, so like the fishermen who are saying, oh, hang on, we're seeing this, we're coming into this industry, and we're seeing the older guys throw their rubbish bins over the side of the sea into the place where they work, which always does just feel like it's like a shocking, um, like lack of thinking about the environment you're working in. So the younger guys, a lot of them probably aren't going to become trawlermen because trawling does draw up the, the seabed, like it really is, it can be really harmful. Whereas if you're a day boat, you really are making minimal impact on your environment. You just can't fish that much. You know, there's, it, it's a similar, like what you were saying, of kind of like making things easier. That fishing, to begin with, it was impossible for it to have a really negative impact. But as soon as you could have um, not just one hook, but sort of thousands of hooks on a line, it just becomes so easy that very quickly, and you know that's great to begin with because that means that you're able to feed more people and the price can go down, but then you start to notice the problems of that. So you can feel it shifting in the industry where people don't want to go into trawling now, they'd rather go into day boat fishermen, being day boat fishermen, and that they are much more conscious of like, every time they bring up plastic, they're bringing it back into land. But I mean, I still don't, then it's like, where does it go next? Mm. So, but it is definitely, I, I noticed a shift and to me that felt, hopeful because there were other things that like a lot of the fish that people are catching is changing because the, the w waters are getting warmer around Cornwall which is kind of changing the way that works as well so there's I think it's that thing where um, it, my experience of London which is so far from things like mudlarking where I'm rarely having to think about my environment and if you are at sea or if you're working on the land you're noticing much more those shifts that yeah so, mm. so they are like kind of the right people to start noticing that. I was interested that that I think it would be easy to think of, of fishermen having a sort of stock character, but actually every single one was was different in terms of their interests, their attitudes, their moods. Uh, that th th was a completely, you know, a cast of individuals. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely a fisherman look, and I think it's something that you sort of want when you're a young fisherman, and you kind of, they start off, everyone's really muscly, and then in their 50s, they've all got really quite impressive beer guts. Um, and but everyone has a sort of similar tattoo, so you might have your boat registration tattooed on you, or uh, maybe like a mermaid or something like that. But then, of course, in character, like with anyone else, they are like vastly different people. One thing I would say maybe united them is like it, it does mean something that if you spend half your life at sea and half it on land, you are going to be a different kind of person. And I think mm -hmm. so many fishermen, and I, again, maybe this is like the shifting roles of what we think masculinity is, but fishermen saying, you know, I come home and my kid cries because he doesn't recognize me because I was at the North Sea for three months and I came back with a beard and my kid thought, who's this? 
And so actually there's, for a lot of them, fishing is so hard and they will do it because their fathers were fishermen and because in Cornwall, you know, apart from tourism, there's not many other industries. Um, but then realizing that actually this has this detrimental impact on what family, or on how to be a father, mm. because you come home and you're exhausted, you barely slept for seven days and then you sleep on the sofa or you're kind of exhausted most of the time. So it's like, when do you get to do that shared parenting? Um, and one, again, this kind of noticing these changes, this one fisherman was telling me, he said, yeah, I, I cry in front of my son. I kind of try and give him all the emotions that I've got. Um, and my dad never did that. And his dad was a fisherman. So, uh, yeah, I guess a lot of them were really different. And I think, again, by spending a lot of time staring at the sea, they were quite contemplative people, um, I thought, most of the guys I met. There's also quite a lot of gallows humour of kind of practical jokes and, uh, and things. How much of that do you think is to put away the very real threat of the sea Trawlers obviously sink at, at frightening rates and, and, and fishermen are lost. Or they might be out for a week and, and, and not get any good catches, or they might be out for a week and get a great catch, but when they land it, three other boats are landing at the same time and they get half price yeah. for the fish. I mean, there are so many kind of pressures on, on fishermen's existence, aren't mm. there? Yeah, I think you've, you've got that exactly, that it is. It's like the, the lines between tragedy and humour are always very close. And like no men that I met hadn't lost a friend a family member to the sea at some point through fishing. So you do require that sense of humour. I also think that, you know, lots of people here at Cornish that there is like a specific type of humour here that is brilliant and sharp and is often practical jokey. Um, and kind of things like, oh, one of the fishermen hated tomatoes. So they, when he'd gone to bed, they put loads of tomatoes in his wellies. So he got to be stepped into tomatoes and things like that. It's, oh, it's so childlike. And that might be another thing is that uh, at sea, Men are often going there from the age of 17, so there is a kind of sense that you are sort of like a child out at sea. There's no other structures around you. You're not having to be a parent at that moment. Um, but I think you're right, it is also, it is, I think, the bit that someone asked me, um, you know, what was the most surprising thing about being out at sea? And I think I thought it was going to be a massive adventure and exciting all the time. But of course, it's actually incredibly boring a lot of the time. And the men say that, and I think part of saying yes to me coming on the boat was it provides a bit of interest to see a young girl throwing up and not being very good at gutting <laughs> to give you, you know, a bit of variety in your week. Um, yeah, so I think that humour is a, just an important coping mechanism, mm. something that mm. is really tricky. Mm. Let's open the floor to, to questions at this point uh, for Lisa Aura or Lamorna. Who would like to uh, get us going with uh, a question from the audience? Yes, over here. We'll just get a microphone to you so we can... Uh, have we got a microphone? Oh, no, we think it might not work. So just bellow it out and we'll, I'll repeat it. Yes. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so I think it was a really strange shift in that way because I did, I'd done uh, a, an undergraduate in English and then moved into this anthropology masters and suddenly was meeting all these new jargony words I hadn't heard of before, like phenomenology, and got there and had this really specific, my, my thesis was the way that um, communities shaped by fishing, uh, this particular community, and looking at the way that time shifts in relation to fishing. And it was, it was academic, it was um, maybe like, what everyone's sort of 22 year old graduate thesis looks like it I think it was really aiming at being as complicated as possible 
Um, alongside of that, I was working at a literary magazine, and they said, you spent four days at sea, why don't you write a piece about this? And so I was like, okay, well, I think that suits my style more, and tried a kind of literary style. Um, and then a publisher, like one of those things that is so lucky, happened to read that and said, do you want to try and write a book? And the first draft was filled with anthropology. And he said, this is, I don't like it at all. Like it's, you know, the, the, everyone is going, oh, what is this? In a way that I definitely, when I read things that are too clearly trying to be like a thesis, it does turn you off a bit. So a pr part of the process of going back to Cornwall was like shifting the way I was thinking about it. So that it wasn't academic, so that it was more myself in there and more personal. And that involved reading like people like, I, I noticed we've got quite a similar bibliography of, of our books, but people like Adam Nicholson or Rachel Carson, Joan Didion. I didn't know much about nature writing, so I really kind of tried to reframe my thinking through reading books that were closer to the things I was trying to achieve. How did the fishermen feel about what you were doing? I mean, that, yeah, so the first time I went, it was really easy to say, listen, is it okay if I interview you? This is only going into a master's thesis. And that, that felt like much safer. And then to come back and say, uh, this time it's for a book, was definitely a much harder thing. And I was quite scared about that because yeah. I, I think everyone says that you have a writer when, uh, sorry, you have a, uh, an ideal reader when you're writing. And my reader, and I don't know if this is wrong, I don't know if I could change this, but my reader is always the people that I'm writing about because particularly with them, I felt so lucky that they let me into the community in the way that they did, that I just knew that I had to do a book that I felt was doing them justice. Um, so I think just by being as honest as possible and sort of trying to like, learn things, like saying, listen, if you change your mind, you don't want me to tell your story, you have my email, tell me at any time and I'll cut it, was kind of the way I mm. went around that because I know that I basically just didn't want to feel like I was stealing stories and, mm. I, and I think it's a constant negotiation mm. when you're doing nonfiction of how mm. to do that. Mm. Mm. Another question. Yes. I come from, my family comes from Newlyn, and I'm obviously, as everybody probably is, very aware that Newlyn is changing. You lived there. What is the balance now? What is the feeling between the original community and the new community? Mm, yeah, um, I think Newlyn is like mm, maybe 10, 15 years behind Mausel's, the next door village, which is pretty much only tourists. Uh, housing now like it's so strange to be there in the off seasons because there's barely anyone there um, but I think Newland the, the benefits it has are that it has like a big old mark fish market um, it's noisy it's it I feel like as long as there's like um, kind of like institutions well not institutions that's the wrong word the, the, the kind of like industrial elements stay it won't become as gentrified as Mausel but I think at the same time that there, there are the artists there and there are these kind of shifting relationships and definitely a lot of the fishermen that I know have been moving inland so then they're driving in so I think yeah it is that unavoidable thing that um, incredible film Bait if people have seen it does that really well that like uh, the tourists then say sorry you're being really noisy could you start fishing maybe an hour later <laughs> and the fishermen are like what and I think you know, that tension of people want something authentic which is such a strange word but we, so we want to see all the boats in the harbour but then you don't want the kind of mess of it as well and so I think it is a negotiation. I haven't been since, oh, literally like two weeks before the pandemic. So I would wonder, things do change so fast. I'm not sure. sure. You, you talk about the, 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 the riot uh, the, the, over landing fish on a Sunday, which Nick Dark made that, that wonderful play out of. But something I, I'd never heard of was, was 1937, when uh, the decision was made to basically pull down what were described as the slums of Newlyn yeah. uh, and move everyone up the hill to, to a new estate. And there was a, a, a trawler went to the Houses of Parliament and, and, and there was a massive uh, protest, which 
it looked like they'd won, but then they sort of hadn't quite. Yeah, I think it's that thing where it's, it's, it's noticing like individuals against a massive moving thing that it's like, it's, you can stop, you can slow time down, you can't stop time. And so these, these fishermen, they did, they went down, there's an amazing picture of a trawler on the Thames. Um, and they went in and they met um, a politician and they said that, so this was the clearances. They were going to, uh, and it, it's another tricky one. And there's so much dispute around the village about whether it was good or not, because uh, some of the houses like, were really hard to live in and there were way too many people in, in the houses. And so their plan was to get rid of them and then make better housing. But then a lot of people were moved away in that process and it meant that less people could be inside the town. And some of the younger people said that actually they're really relieved to live in better quality houses. And some people said, this is my home. And there is always, again, that like tension there. Mm. Um, but some of the houses were saved and some were pulled down and replaced with new things. And so it is, it's quite a mishmash of a town in that mm. way. Lisa, mm. do you, do you, how do you feel having spent, what, 25 years? How long have you been doing this? When did you, when did you start collecting? Ooh. As a child, <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. forty odd years. <laughs> yeah. So when when you look at when you look at these things, I mean, first of all, does it are you taken back to periods of your of your life by by some of your finds? Um, obviously, I went back to the beaches where I grew up, mm. um, and so yes, and sometimes, but it has. It has changed from then. I don't remember that we, we didn't find the kinds of things that 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 I find now um, when I was growing up. Mm. It, there, there just wasn't that kind of amount of plastic because it, I was quite early on in there. So I grew up. I, I was born in '69, so so it, it, it was still quite new then. Because at the end of your book, there's a sort of curious mix. I think of a sort of sense of despair and optimism and panic. I mean, th th there are hopeful signs, but, but there's a lot to be frightened of. Yeah, it's also, it, I, I began the book before plastic became much more of an issue several years ago, and I'd begun the book, I think, 2017. It was before the Blue Planet issue that, that, and, and the, 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 the film provoked a lot of interest in it. So, yeah, it... it, it it, it seemed to change the environment around it changed quite a lot while I was writing the book and the, the uh, and climate change the, the awareness of the, the that it was all coming together so it does so I did I, I really swung between sometimes I would sometimes when you're just on a beach that's covered in plastic mm. you, you would just be really shocked and think and and doing a lot of the reading and the research was and because a lot of it I didn't know when I started and um yeah, so I did swing between, and then there'd be really hopeful things when, when awareness is rising and, and, and things happening. So I've continued to, to feel like that. But there's a frustration there, isn't there, about just why we can't make certain very obvious changes. I mean, like going back to, going back to glass bottles and, and, and not having, you know, paper cups for our coffee and not having, I'm looking around to check we've got glasses on the table, but we have, you know, <laughs> having, having a jug of water and two glasses rather than having three plastic bottles of water. It doesn't seem to take much. And yet it seems to be very difficult to make happen on any meaningful scale. It does, and sometimes because we just can't see it. Because I would sometimes think I'd, I'd come back with the stuff from the, the beaches here that, that I would find, and I'd think how astonished my granddad would be if he saw what's in our bins now in comparison to he would have been in that 1950s. Um, but it's very difficult for us to see because it's, mm. it's, it's changed quite slowly. And, mm. and, but, but 
we, we just don't see it mm. within within our own lives i think mm. you take your daughter beach combing is, 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 is she <laughs> she's she's nearly she's 14 now so so i think she's peaked on her because <laughs> it used i mean there's a period when you're writing the book where it becomes a real rivalry between you know she, yeah she was quite yeah. competitive yeah yeah and i did i find that the, the, the there's quite a cult thing here of finding the lego and i found a lego dragon I saw at school once and uh, that, that went down really badly <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Uh, oh gosh, lots. Yes, let's 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 start with. We'll start with yes. Yep, and then we'll come to you. Yes, yes. Uh, do you keep everything that you find? Was the question, and and do you curate it at all? And I think from the photos in the book, you do. Well, I do for the photograph. <laughs> But it's just accumulated, and because over the, th I, I probably did the walks for the book over, it was really over a period of a, a year and a half, but probably about three years of collecting a lot of stuff that I would ordinarily not be collecting. Um, and so it, it's, it's vast in comparison to what I would normally keep, but I've reached this stage now where I don't quite know, it's, it's in boxes in my house. <laughs> can, can you throw it away? No, and I thought I might come to a stage fairly soon because I'm. Quite. What about yes? Yeah, so what, what were you going on? Yeah, my question was to both of you. What are you both going to do next? Yes. Question or to both of you, what you're both going to do next? <laughs> well, who wants to go first? I, I don't mind. Um, I'm, I am. I'm working on another book with the same publisher um, that I started actually at about the same time that this one came out. Um, but it's a bit too early to say what it's about. It's watery, There's a, uh, there is a watery, um, but it won't come out until 2023 or 2024. So, so I can't really say too much. Good morning. I think all I know is that mine won't be watery, um, but, <laughs> but I know that, well, actually, I don't even know that. I have no idea quite what I'm going to be doing next. Um, I still do lots of writing. I've been doing bits of fiction as well. I've been writing some longer reads, but. I don't know that there's it's tricky trying to decide where to go next, I think, um, and still trying to work out how I want to write or what kind of writer I want to be. So I don't know. I, don't, I haven't got a good answer. One last question from the floor. Yes, right at the back. <laughs> Hi, Lorna. Um, I, just wanna, I live in Union. I've moved from Port Isaac, one fishing village to another, right down west. Um, and what's interesting is you were saying about the relationship between food and fishing. And I just wondered when you were last <laughs> yes, please. I'd love to. I didn't know. When did it open? Uh, this summer. Yeah, and I haven't been. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, it's a really lovely, I just found it like a really lovely full circle from what you were kind of talking about yeah. and how things are having to diversify just a little bit in order to stop things becoming so gentrified that there isn't a business dynamic for those fish and the local economy. That sounds amazing. An unfashionable, unfashionable fish can... Uh, my brother was in the fish trade and, and used to monk fish was basically sold for cat food and yeah. now it's the most fashionable yeah. one of the most fashionable fishes um, a lot of fishermen I know don't eat fish I mean kind of turn their noses up at it where, where, where are you after writing this book <laughs> and are you still gutting um, 
I haven't gutted since, I'm afraid. <laughs> Mostly when you get fish, I guess it does come with the guts already out. I actually mainly am a vegetarian again. Um, but if I'm given fish when I go to stay in other places, I do absolutely love fish. I just don't cook it much myself. Um, it's hard to say no. <laughs> it's hard to say no, and I, I do think it is incredible. So I should eat. Yeah, but I think a lot of the fishermen, particularly on board the boat, would not eat any fish at all because their hands are in it all day long. It's really mm. fair enough to be like, actually, I need a break from fish. But there is a lovely moment when someone fries up with little soles they fry up. I can't remember what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early in the morning, for I breakfast. Had yeah. breakfast one yeah. day, yeah. which was lovely. Although someone says, no, I'm having cheese on toast, and someone else, <laughs> yeah. someone else <laughs> yeah. has a pot noodle. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> pot noodle all the time, one of them. Yeah. And yeah. um, uh, Lisa, finally, I mean, have you got something that you treasure most of all that you've, you've collected? Is this something, I mean, not necessarily here, but is this something that you look at and you think this has really made it worthwhile? I think probably not in the sense, because it was, I was often after really ordinary domestic mm. things that told a story. And so, so not always the objects, I have got things that are really, they're really old, they're medieval that, that I found, but, but to be honest, it was often just a bit of, it would be a bit of comb or toothbrush. Should we see the comb actually? The Nick comb. The Nick comb, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah, this, I found this just close to, to where um, my great, third great-grandfather lived um, and it's a it's a comb but the fine side it, it dates from 1600s probably um, but the fine side was to tease out the nits and they, they know this for sure because um, they were found on the, the Mary Rose that, that, that sunk in the 1500s um, they, they found 82 of these then, but they still had the knits where it had been down, <laughs> sunk in the mud. They had 500-year-old knits caught in there. So this seemed quite... And I also, because I find the, the same plastic, I liked it when I would find the bone ones as well as the plastic and anything quite domestic. So that, that is a, a particular... It goes in the favourite kitchen cupboard great. times. Then. Great. <laughs> well, there you are. We've had knits and fish guts <laughs> and much in between. I, I, these are both really, really fantastic books and I would really commend to you if you haven't... If you haven't read them already, they are cracking reads, uh, both of them. Uh, Lorna, Lamorna and Lisa, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.